Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian, and this is Our Weird World. Alright, so I'm finally getting back to my infamous Serial Killers series that I started a while back during this podcast. So this is one part of the podcast that I wanted to do. I wanted to do um, true crime, talk about serial killers, things like that, on top of the other stuff that I do as well, the paranormal and and weird history and stuff. The paranormal and the weird history is is definitely something that I really enjoy and really like. That that, that was my wrist popping. (laughs) Um, That's stuff that I really enjoy and really like doing personally. Um, So I'll probably, I'm going to, I'm going to probably, not probably, I'm going to keep doing more of, that stuff episodes of that in between these serial killer episodes but i i was kind of thinking about it recently and i thought because i i wanted to at first i was going to be like just one right after another serial killer serial killer serial killer do all these episodes but i thought no i want to just kind of mix it in here and there just kind of pepper in an episode here and there so i'm going to do some of the paranormal weird history things like that whatever ghost stories um and then throw in one of these these uh serial killer episodes I'll do some other true crime stuff as well, but this one, if you're if you're a new listener, I basically decided I want to do take the 50 states in the United States where, where I live in the U.S. Ram, randomize their order. Initially, I was going to do them alphabetically, A through Z, ending on Wyoming, but I thought, nah, I'll, I'll just I'll just take the states and I'll kind of just basically randomize them. And then start going down that way, so it'll it won't follow any really any particular order per se. So it's somewhat random. I thought that'd be a better idea. So that's what I started with. I've been I've done three episodes so far. This will be the fourth one of this. And so with my creating this randomness and, and whichever one I'm going to get, today's episode is for the state of New York. Now New York certainly has not had any shortage of serial killers, unfortunately. In this idea of this series I wanted to do, I wanted to take what might be considered the most infamous serial killer murderer from each state. So based on that, being that we're doing New York, it would seem that the man by the name of Joel Rifkin is likely the most uh, infamous serial killer candidate for my episode. I'm sure some of you have probably heard of him. Um, I've definitely heard about him through other podcasts and shows that I've watched and whatnot. Um, so he's his name wasn't new to me. There's definitely some stuff in here doing this research that I wasn't aware of uh, from some of these other things that I had listened to or seen. Um, you know, stuff that they may have just glossed over. Yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about today. So we'll we'll kind of start with like his upbringing, childhood, work our way up into what it is he did and how he got there basically so it's kind of the format i I try to follow and i've been trying to follow i'm going to try to be better about i know the first few episodes were a little kind of bit all over the place but i'm going to try to follow more of that pattern of who this person is their upbringing how they came to be the way they are or and or what caused them to do these murders right so that's what i want to get into so who is joel rifkin So his full name is Joel David Rifkin. He was born January 20th, 1959. Now his biological parents, they actually adopted him out only three weeks after he was born. 
on February 14th, Valentine's Day of all days. But in my research, I, I didn't find a, even a whole lot of information on that, just that he was adopted out. Literally not even a month old. So he was adopted by an upper middle class couple that lived on Long Island in New York. Now his parents, basically the information I found, they were unwed young college students. Other information I did find was that his biological father was an army veteran. That's kind of like the only specifics I could really find. So whatever reason, they adopted him out. Now, three years after he was adopted, his adopted parents adopted another child, a, a girl, a daughter named Jan. So he had an adopted sister with his family. A few years later, in 1965, his adoptive parents and his adopted sister, they moved to East Meadow, Long Island where he would grow up. Now, he did attend Prospect Avenue Elementary School. Now, he, he did have difficulty in school and had a hard time fitting in with his peers. Uh, he was frequently targeted by school bullies. Uh, it's it said that he had um, learning disabilities, so he didn't do very well in school either as far as his grades. Um, he, he didn't play in any team sports or, or even just like, kind of like neighborhood stuff too um like like you go you know you go outside when you're young and play with your neighborhood friends right go ride your bikes or go outside and play catch stuff like that he didn't really do much of that either um a part of it was again kids you know can be so nasty to each other unfortunately but he apparently had a bit of a sloping posture and kind of a slow walking gait and so of kid of course kids naturally you know, made fun of him for this. And so he didn't want to join in with them and felt really left out, unfortunately. So here he is, this young child, has learning disabilities, having trouble in school, getting bullied on, neighborhood kids won't even play with him. So, you know, this sort of upbringing, you feel sorry for him as the kid. I, I've said that before in other episodes talking about uh, these serial killers. And, and I've, I've heard people talk about that in other podcasts and shows. It's like definitely their upbringing can help, I think, mold them into who they are as parents, excuse me, as adults from their parents and, and maybe not directly specifically cause them to become these murderers, but definitely influence the decisions it makes. Obviously some of it can be counted back to their childhood upbringing, but I, I definitely think, yeah, this is definitely a part of it, but you can see kind of the pattern of this with other serial killers. It's very similar that they have these unfortunately bad childhoods and upbringings and whatnot from whatever various reasons and and it, it I, I don't want to say like it's a mental illness but but that it it causes something mentally it has to that, that's my thought I'm sure there's a lot of research out there more on it but it has to influence them obviously mentally and to go down this path later as an adult but anyways the point is that you can kind of see the direction that things are going because of this he apparently also suffered from an undiagnosed uh, dyslexia and, again, struggled academically as well because of this. Now, this is despite uh, his actual IQ being said to be 128. You know, take it for what it is. I, I know a lot of people look at IQ numbers as like, oh, yeah, you, you have a high IQ number, you're a genius or whatever. Oh, you have a low IQ number, you're, you're not whatever. I, I don't know. I've never had an IQ test. I, I don't really care. I don't think it's anything that, I think it's a metrics metric that, I don't know. I, I think that it, it shouldn't really matter too much, 
Because in cases like this, in a person like this, where, yeah, he had a high IQ, probably a pretty smart guy, but obviously his upbringing helped lead him down a certain path. So I think regardless of what your IQ is, I think part of it is definitely, like I said before, that that upbringing, your childhood, what opportunities you have, et cetera, things like that. You, you can imagine, right? A lot of different things along those lines. So, but anyways, he did have an IQ of 128. As he entered into his teen years, like most teenagers, any teenagers, he wanted to fit in, right? He wanted to make friends. He wanted to, you know, especially teen years. If, if you're a teenager now, you, I'm sure you get it. But as a teenager, once I know it, you're, you're trying to fit in, trying to, you know, what's the cool clothing everybody's wearing, cool hairstyles, whatever, all that kind of stuff, right? You're, you're trying to fit in with your peers and, and be noticed and, and make friends within your, your, your groups or whatever, right? Sort of thing. So he's trying to fit in. He's trying to, trying to, you know, he's a teenager trying to, to find his, his place, right? So he actually joined the track team at his high school and, and kind of in, in hopes of, of making more friends. But just like his younger childhood, his teammates frequently would torment him and give him a hard time and whatnot. So unfortunately, it didn't seem to go the way that he was hoping. And frustrated with the athletics, with his athletics, uh, he actually decided to join the yearbook staff. Little note, I was actually on the yearbook staff of the high school that I went to uh, my senior year. So it was actually pretty cool. It was actually a pretty neat experience. I actually got a, a, a letter for it. You know, the letters you put on your jacket, letterman jackets. That was the only one I got, but it was cool. It was fun. It was neat being a part of it. So he was part of the yearbook staff. And of course, all the stuff he's already been through, he his camera that he used to take pictures for the yearbook staff for the creation of the yearbook was stolen shortly after starting. Uh, he was also excluded from the rap party at the end of the year for the yearbook. So it's like just obviously no, like it's so unfortunate because people are bullying him. They're still on his camera. His teammates on the track team didn't want him there. It's like the guy can't catch a break as in his childhood or, or as a teenager. It's like, it's, it's unfortunate. So like I said before, it, feel sorry for the kid. I won't feel sorry for the adult murderer. Now let's talk about getting into what led him to become a murderer. What, what, where did he go down this way and, and get this way? So he started getting into, um, I was going to say prostitution, but that makes it sound like he was a prostitute. <laughs> no, he started seeking prostitutes for for sex, obviously, right? That's what you get a prostitute for. He was arrested. Let me see. Where was it at? I had a note here. Oh, yeah, um, 1987. So it was a little bit later, but uh, he was arrested in 1987 during a uh, uh, sex worker sting in Hempstead, New York. He basically solicited uh, an undercover female police officer and was arrested. So he was starting to solicit prostitutes for sex. At this time when he was soliciting prostitutes, um, it's said that he would uh, daydream about rape, raping women, and even stabbing women. In 1972, inspired by the Alfred Hitchcock film Frenzy, uh, Rifkin, he actually became really fixated on the idea of strangling prostitutes. So he's starting, so he's soliciting prostitutes. Now he's starting to get in this idea of fantasizing about harming them, about causing bodily harm to these prostitutes and it kind of makes me wonder if 
his ideas or mentality on this are kind of like you, you hear about it a lot if you watch like documentaries kind of relating to the similar thing or 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 podcasts or, or about other murderers that murder prostitutes unfortunately you hear about a lot this kind of idea of like prostitutes are are not real people or or less than human or less than real people that nobody cares about them that they're out on the streets whoring themselves out you know they, they don't have parents etc cetera, etc cetera, all this blah 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 whatever and so people will, will target them unfortunately for you know like this sort of thing for harming them and yeah it's it's extremely unfortunate now now whatever led those people to become prostitutes uh, obviously i don't know they're I'm sure there's a multitude of reasons, but it's unfortunate that people have that idea and thought towards prostitutes that they're less than human, that who cares about them? Yeah, it's a profession that, you know, I personally, I'm, I'm not going to go out and, and solicit a prostitute, but they're, whatever reason they're doing it, they're trying to make ends meet. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm not in their shoes. I, I'm not them. So it is unfortunate that this stuff does happen, that you hear about this sort of thing. It is out there. So, but it, like I said, it kind of makes me wonder if, if that's the sort of mentality that he had as well at this time was, was, was maybe he thought of them as less than human. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But as like I said, he became fixated on this idea of strangling prostitutes. So around this time, his parents had actually given him a car. So now he's got a vehicle he can get around. Um, and he started using this vehicle to go around and, like I said, solicit prostitutes. And according to the research I read, that he not only would solicit prostitutes, but would, would, would quote, troll for prostitutes in the near, nearby uh, Hempstead and later in Manhattan. Now, this passion that he had developed for prostitutes would increase and just become stronger and stronger. Like I said, he did attend college, but didn't graduate. I think I said that. Did I say that? Oh, my gosh, I'm not sure. I had to go back and re-record this, so maybe it was in the before, but he went to different colleges in, in 1977, never finished, didn't get his degree. If I didn't say it there, I said it now. So at this time, he was attending Nassau Community College in 1977, and he would often skip classes during this time. He had a part-time job, which sometimes he would not show up for his shift, basically preferring to spend his time with prostitutes instead. Now, of course, prostitution, it costs money. So he's got this part-time job he's not showing up for. Well, you need money to, to pay for your prostitutes, right? Unfortunately, it caused him to basically whittle down his money. So he was running out of out of money to, to keep up with his habit, if you or, or even uh, uh, addiction, if you will. So he did move in and out of his parents' house throughout this time, back and forth. He'd live on his own and he'd move back in with them because he'd be out of money. Um, throughout this time and up into the 80s. Now, like I said, he did bounce from school to school as well between this time uh, into the into uh, 1984, Nassau Community College, like I said, 1977, State University of New York at Brockport and State University of New York at Farmingdale. And then when he finally decided to drop out in 1984, again, just like before when he was younger, he, poor grades, didn't perform well, decided to drop out, never finished. Now... By early 1989, he was having trouble with the these violent fantasies that he's having of harming these prostitutes. And he actually waited for his mom, this is his, his adopted mom, 
to leave on a business trip that she had planned. And then he actually picked up a young girl, prostitute, by the name of Susie. He brought this uh, woman, Susie, back to his parents' home where he lived with them at the time in Long Island. And what he did was he bludgeoned her or, or hit her with, uh, had a howitzer artillery shell. Not sure where that came from, but that's what was quoted in the research I found. It's it's basically like a it, howitzer cannon. It's it and the shell. It's like you think of a bullet casing, but massive. It's huge. When and of course she started to struggle. He he hit her with it, and then he continued. When he when he realized she wasn't dead from bludgeoning her with this this giant casing, he strangled her to death. Now at this point, he has this dead prostitute there in his house. What does he do? At this point, he actually dismembers her body, and according to the research I found, said that it was done with an exacto knife. And excuse me, I misread that. He used the exacto knife to remove her fingertips, and then he removed her teeth with pliers. So he, he did this in the idea of making it more difficult to be able to identify her, because obviously fingerprints you can identify somebody very easily, and then obviously teeth. Uh, uh, dent, dental records are an extremely easy way to identify somebody. Teeth are very unique, so that's a very easy way to identify someone. So he cut off her fingertips to get rid of fingerprints and pulled her teeth with pliers. And then what he did was he he hid her severed head in an old paint can and stashed the rest of her body in garbage bags. And this sounds pretty familiar to uh, another guy that I'm going to do an episode about in the future. But if you know what I'm talking about, you know, very infamous one as well. Now he dumped the head and the legs in the woods of Hopewell, New Jersey. He tossed her arms and torso into the East River back in New York. And despite his elaborate attempts to conceal the murder, a member of the Hopewell Valley Golf Club found this paint can which contained Susie's head. And this was several days later. He he discovered this. So obviously this person contacted the police and because he had removed her teeth it actually says police were unable to figure out the victim's identity and or who was responsible for the murder so now he's committed his first murder via strangulation which is i can't imagine the intimacy of that because you're literally holding somebody's neck you're face to face and just watching the life go out of them and from what I've heard from other podcasts and other documentaries I've watched, strangling somebody, it's not like you see in movies where you put your hands over their throat and 20 seconds later they're gone. No, we're talking minutes of struggle and panic and uh, I'm sure fighting back from the person trying to survive. So it's it's a horrendous act, I'm sure. Obviously, I've never committed strangulation on anyone, but based on the things I've I've listened to and seen and heard it, it like i said in other podcasts and documentaries i imagine it to be just a horrendously intimate way to kill someone just can't really imagine anything beyond that but so now he's committed his first murder separated her body and trying to hide the identity and, and spread her her parts throughout the area so at this point he kind of is lying low for a little while and about a year later he would claim his second victim, another prostitute by the name of Julie Blackbird. 
And he did the same thing he did in the first one. He waited for his mother to go out of town on a business trip because of her work. He drove Miss Blackbird to the home in Long Island, did whatever they did. You know, he hired a prostitute because the research I looked at said that he, she was there with him in the night and then he murdered her the next morning. So the next morning, he beat her, this time with a table leg. I would assume saying table leg probably made out of some sort of hard wood, probably, right? Uh, Who knows, pine or something, maybe. Essentially, like, almost like a bat, right? Before also strangling her. So kind of the same same thing, right? Hit her, then strangle her. That's what he did with the first one. And again, he dismembered her body, just as he did before on the first one. However, this time, he placed her body parts in buckets that were weighted down with concrete and tossed them into the East River and also into the Brooklyn Canal. So he, he changed it up, obviously. I'm guessing that he probably heard about the head being found in the paint can by the, the golf club member. And, you know, probably, I'm sure, I can imagine, probably scared him, like, oh, crap, they're going to find out who this is and who did it. So he changed things up a little bit, how he got rid of the body. Um, again, that's just me speculating. I couldn't find a specific on that as far as in my research. But that would li- lead me to think that that's, you know, you would probably hear about that in the news, a, a head being found in a paint can at a golf club. And then you, you'd be like, oh, no, that was me doing that. Okay, I better change things up. So so this is what he did. He put her body parts in buckets weighted down by concrete, tossed them into the river and into the canal. Now, later on in 1991, he started his own landscaping business. and he would then use rented job sites as places to stash corpses, the bodies of his victims, until he could properly dispose of them, rather than using his parents' home, as far as where to, 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 to do everything. Now, during this time, he had multiple victims in a, a very close period of time, all of them being prostitutes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say their names here, the, the next victims. Barbara Jacobs, Mary Ellen DeLuca, and Yun Lee. Now, he would go on to strangle 17 other women, excuse me, 17 women total. Uh, Most of them were drug addicts and prostitutes, according to the records and their names and everything. But because of the way he was doing it, the way he was disposing of their bodies, the police were very rarely able to identify the victims. And still couldn't find the perpetrator who was doing these crimes, these murders. Uh, Some of the research I found said that the police were, they were trying to make the connections that these were, you know, possibly a serial killer from the same person because they're happening in the same area. It's prostitutes. The way they're being killed, the way they're being disposed of in a a similar manner, right? Trying to piece it together, right? Later in June of 1993, Rifkin would go on to strangle uh, prostitute Tiffany Bresciani, he drove her back to his mother's home, kind of the same as before the early ones. He stopped at a store along the way to actually buy a rope and a tarp. He stopped at the store to buy rope and tarp while she was laying in the back seat of his mother's car. He used her mother's car and she was dead in the back seat. He went to get rope and a tarp. Uh, by the time he got home, she, uh, he had wrapped her body in this tarp and used the rope to tie it, but he put her in the trunk of the vehicle at that time. Now, he moved her into the garage of the home, uh, left her body in a wheelbarrow, 
And the time that he did this, not, probably not a, a good time to do it. It was during the summer, so it was hot. Left her, left her in there for three days. Yeah, hot summer for three days. He was on his way to dump her body about 15 miles north of the home when police troopers actually noted he was missing a rear license plate on his truck that he was driving. Simple traffic stop, right? Oh, guy doesn't have a license plate. So the police that noticed it came up behind him to pull him over. Do you think Rifkin pulled over? No, of course not. So he actually started speeding away from them, getting into a high-speed chase. Uh, panicked and scared, Rifkin, he actually crashed, crashed the truck into a utility pole in front of the local courthouse. Just perfect. So fitting, right? As the police came up to the car, that's when they noticed the smell of the decaying body. Summer, three days sitting in a garage. It's going to smell wonderful, I'm sure. I've never smelt a dead human body. I have definitely smelt um, decaying mammals. So I, I have an idea of what that smells like. It's not pleasant. It's, it's very pungent, even on a small animal. Even on, uh, from coming from a, a small rodent or bird or, or other small animal, it is unforgettable. So the police officers noted this odor coming from the back of the truck. And of course, this was from Grisciani's uh, rotting corpse. They did take Rifkin into, into custody. What, they did discover her corpse and took him into custody, obviously, for having her dead body in the back of his truck. So he was arrested now at this point. So he'd committed all these murders, 17 in total, basically through the same motive the entire entire time. And now at this point, he has been arrested. So this actually occurred on June 28th of 1993 when all this happened with the, the, the chase and everything and when he was arrested. Now during his initial uh, imprisonment and, and waiting for trial, he did describe all 17 murders, writing out the names that he could remember and even sketching maps to help police find the victims that were still missing. He was transferred to the Nassau County Correctional Facility in East Meadow uh, to be prepared to stand trial. Yeah, so on May 9th, 1994, after the trial had gone through, he was sentenced to 25 years to life for the murders, as well as reckless endangerment for the leading of police on a car chase. He was then transferred to Suffolk County Jail shortly after the trial, where he pleaded guilty to two more counts of murder. He received two more consecutive terms of 25 years to life in prison. By January 1996, he was scheduled to serve at least 183 years for seven murders, with 10 counts outstanding. That same year, after several conflicts with other inmates, sounds a lot like his upbringing in school, uh, prison officials did decide that his presence at the prison was very disruptive. And he was placed in solitary confinement at the Attica Correctional Facility for 23 hours a day over the course of four years. So he literally only had one hour a day where he was outside of solitary confinement for four years. I, I know he's a murderer, so I was going to say that sucks, but honestly, like, f*** him. Excuse my language, but <laughs> it's the first time cussing on this podcast, but I'll bleep that out. 
uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about some more, but I want to make a note here. Um, like I said, he was found guilty on the nine counts in 1994. Um, I, I mentioned serve at least 183 years for the slangs. Um, it is also quoted that he was sentenced up to 203 years. So basically between 183 and 203 years. So he's not getting out of prison anytime soon. He is still alive. Note, he is still alive. He is still in prison. Uh, let's see. So later, okay, I mentioned that he was disruptive. Yep, yep, yep. He was uh, later transferred to Clinton Correctional Facility in Clinton County, New York. Uh, he did actually sue, arguing that his solitary imprisonment, imprisonment excuse me, was unconstitutional. And this was in 2000 when he actually did this, when he, when he attempted to sue them for this. The state court actually determined that prison officials had not violated his constitutional rights by housing him in that isolation. Uh, corrections uh, officials said that Rifkin was imprisoned with more than 200 other inmates at Clinton who were not allowed into the general prison population. So he wasn't the only one. Uh, a couple years later, in 2002, New York Supreme Court rejected Rifkin's appeal of his convictions for the murder of the nine women. Awesome. Good job there, New York Supreme Court. And like I said, he is now serving this 203-year, up to 203-year sentence in the Clinton Correctional Facility. He is eligible parole. He is eligible parole. It, but it's not until 2197, the year 2197, uh, at which he'll be 238 years old. So if he makes it to 238 years old, he can, uh, he, he will be up for parole. So we'll see if, if he lives that long. Maybe we'll see in the year 2197. I don't know if I'll be around by then. Maybe you will be. I don't know. Let me know if you're around 2197. If he makes up for parole at the age of 238, we'll see what happens. Sorry, bad humor, I guess. But again, like I said, F that guy. For what he did, it's, yeah, it's just absolutely horrendous what he did to those women. I, I don't care that they're prostitutes. Um, and whatever idea he had or ideals he had about them and about doing this, it's just, it's so wrong. I, I don't care. Yeah. It prostitution, it's not the greatest way to anyways, my personal opinion, I, I don't agree with people being prostitutes, but I understand there's a lot of things out there, a lot of things that happen. They're, they're trying to do what they're doing for whatever reason they're doing. They're still people. So him going out there and murdering all of them again, bleep him. Yeah, that's Joel Rifkin. Um, that, that's kind of it, really. Um, like I said, he's still currently serving right now. Um, he would be, what would he be? He'd be 64 years old now. Um, so he was born in 1959. He did this during the late 70s. So he was, uh, gosh, he was born in 1959. His first one was 1977. So, so was that 17, 18 years old? Yeah, about 18. And then all through the 80s. So teen years into his 20s. Um, and then he was caught in 93, so that would have made him, what, uh, 30, 30, 33 at the time? 34? Yeah, he did it for quite a while, obviously. Um, unfortunately, murdered those those young ladies. Was convicted for nine of them. It is He did state that he did 17. Yeah, that, that's, that's where it is. And, again, he's still in prison. So, I hope he rots there, which... Obviously, he's going to. I know I joked a little bit earlier about his parole, but yeah. So, yeah, that's Joel Rifkin. Um, I hope you all enjoyed it. If you guys have anything else you'd like to add to it, comments, questions, concerns, complaints, whatever, I'm open for it. Reach out to me. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Our Weird World. 
You can email me at ourweirdworldpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram, Our Weird World. I'll have all that linked in the show notes and all that. So, yeah, reach out to me. Just Even if you just want to say hi. Or if you want to suggest something. If you have an idea for a future episode. Um, anything. Anything weird, unusual, true crime, whatever. Send it my way. If it's something I haven't done yet, I, I, I would love to, to know. Um, I'm all about the odd and weird stuff out in the world and true crime stuff. So, yeah, reach out to me if you enjoyed this. So, as always, thank you very much. We'll catch you next time.